Welcome everyone to Social Work Stories. Uh, hello, I'm Mim Fox and I'm here with Liz Murphy. Hi Liz. Hello Mim. How are hello, you? Hello everyone. And hello Justin, who's also tuned in. Justin Stesh, our producer. Good to have you with us. Making sure we behave ourselves. Well, it's important someone does, Liz. How are you today? How are you doing, Liz? I'm brain dead. I was on call last night and I haven't slept. So this is just a caveat that whatever comes out of my mouth now is completely out of my control. Oh, look, you and every other social worker out there who's been on call lately, I think, it feels like there's a rash going around, so that's good. We've, no, we've got the pre-Christmas craziness that goes on in yes. all social work positions. That's it, that's, that's the, it. The concept of families coming together, I think, kind of <laughs> triggers people. Families yep. coming together after periods of lockdown and people not being able to see each other this year. It's the heightened love that uh, families are coming together with now. <laughs> and look, I would say to people though, COVID is still with us oh, and yeah. it's still one of those things that we can be suggesting. If ever there was a great excuse to not get together, COVID. One word, COVID. <laughs> That's the word for the year. Can't wait till next year when we might come up with a different word. That would be great. <laughs> Liz, this is such an exciting episode because we are doing something different this episode, something we haven't done before on this podcast, but we've talked about quite a lot. We have. For ages now, we've been hopeful that we would one day be able to listen to a social worker talk about their work with a client and then have that client tell, you know, the story from their perspective and we've actually done it. And I was a lucky person that got to sit in the presence of this wonderful social worker called Beck, who works in a head injury service down on the south coast of, of uh, New South Wales. And her equally wonderful client, Paul, who also shares parts of his story, uh, in particular, the, the work that he and Beck have done together over a very protracted period of time. But I had the privilege of going with my mic in hand to both of their homes. There was a moment though when I arrived at Paul's place and there are two dogs looking at me. One apparently is an American Staffy, and I thought, oh, really, do, do I love the podcast that much? Do I love the podcast? He brought back all those home visiting days where you'd just be thinking, oh, sweet Mary, how do I do this? But anyway, they were, they were absolute teddy bears and Paul and his wife and Beck welcomed me into their home and I sat there um, and we kind of just talked for quite some time. And Paul told a really beautiful story, but I guess I wanted to say we've taken out bits of his story that really focus on, on the work that he and Beck have done. Yeah. So there might be elements to it that um, people are kind of thinking, well, hang on, what? This doesn't kind of link as well to that piece. Um, but we've done that because we also wanted to, I guess, let Beck tell the story from the social work perspective as well. So, yeah. Um, Liz, what a beautiful, what a privilege for you to be able to go into his home and have this conversation. So generous. Yeah. And I have to say that Paul and Beck also regularly talk with our social work students um, and tell their story in its entirety. And it's yeah. always one of those um, um, I guess lessons that our social work students will say that was like the highlight. Yeah, to actually they they equally to come into the university and speak to our social work students there as well. So, like you know, that's why they're happy to be not anonymous like our normal social workers are. They're happy to be named because actually they've been doing this for a while, sharing their experiences of working together over such a lengthy period of time. They've worked together for fifteen years, so it's a really great reflection of long-term partnership work in social work, isn't it? And uh, one of the things that I really like is the contrast in the way they tell their stories and their languaging. I really like Paul's, and we would probably in Australia call it that knockabout, blokey kind of way of talking, which I, I just adore. 
Um, and and I would imagine that there will be some people that are listening to this and have never actually heard um, an Australian accent like Paul's. It's, yeah. I love it. And then contrasted by Beck, who then talks in her very gentle, reflective way um, and weaves through it this, this graciousness, but also this really strong, informed um, way in which she's been working with both Paul and his, his wife. Um, for many years. That's so great. So Liz, why don't we listen? Why don't we start with Paul? Let's have a listen to his story, have a little chat, and then have a listen to Beck. All right, so great. everyone will enjoy Paul's story and we'll be back with you in a second. My name's Paul Webb. Um, I've been a carer for Oh, 15 years now. Um, I know you can't see me, but if you could, I am actually in a wheelchair because five years ago I broke my back and I become a um, paraplegic. But that also involved um, me also becoming a client at Ibis where my wife was already a client because of her injury, which is a, um, she got hit in there by a gum tree, bran gum tree branch 15 years ago, panthrated brain. Um, put her in hospital for 20 weeks. Um, yeah, so that's how she got injured. Uh, me, I fell through a roof um, doing a job five years ago. I only fell 2.9 metres, but I landed on my head. So it gave me a quiet brain injury, uh, destroyed my right shoulder and um, fractured or broke um, T11 and 12. Um, so, I'm what's known as A to C incomplete, which means that uh, my spinal cord isn't severed, so any previous pain that I had from a previous back injury in the lower back, um, I get to keep. So with the way I used to cure it was walk around, but so now I just live on painkillers. Um, but back to the fact that Rebecca, um, she's my social worker, or when my wife got hurt and I first started going to see her, um, I didn't think I needed her, you know what I mean? Um, I'm a male, I'm cool, I can do anything myself. But after a few months and me talking to her, um, I really look forward to our visits. Because um, she taught me um, a lot about myself actually. And um, different ways of handling stuff, different, different, it was good to have a different perspective of what um, you're facing, you know, what people have, um, yeah, you just don't know. Like I was about five years into my caring, I suppose, and um, I got, the black dog got me bad. Um, that bad that I wouldn't leave the house. So yeah, I said, Rebecca, come and see me. And eventually she talked me into going and see her. Um, and we're sitting in her office one day and talking away. You know, um, I just closed down. I didn't want to talk much, but I, I was on this day I was talking to her. And I was sitting there and I just said, oh, yeah, Paul, bloody Paul. I just, Paul, Paul. And um, it switched something on in my head. And I just said to myself, "You." I said it loud, actually, didn't I? I said, you bloody idiot. I said, back, I'm fine. I'll see you in two weeks. And she looked and she said, no, what's going on? I said, don't worry, mate, I'm fine. I said, I'll see you, didn't I? And that's exactly what I said to her. I mean, if you wonder why I'm going, didn't I? Rebecca's sitting opposite me. So... Um, <laughs> Uh, so that's why I'm that's why I'm acting if um, she's in the conversation. But yeah, and uh, that's a that was a major turning point in my life. Um, it got me back on track to um, actually live life again. Stop feeling sorry for myself. Um, um, it may sound a bit funny saying stop feeling sorry for myself, but I did at that stage. Um, and yeah, we just she's just been brilliant through the whole thing. Um, when I um, actually, one, one more. She actually taught me how to how to control my emotions, um, not control them, but better ways of what's it called, practices or techniques. Better better techniques for handling different situations, um, which was really has worked out very invaluable in the last ten years. So thank you. And I think we've been together fourteen years or fifteen years or something. And no, it's just great to see 
you know, she's what watched us develop as a family and um, get everything on track and all the tragedies we've been through. Uh, she goes on holidays, comes back, gets a phone call, finds out that I fell through a roof, broke me back. You know what I mean? Um, help, help wherever she could, come and see me at the hospital, which was brilliant. Um, rang her up numerous times just talking to her. Um, um, and just, yeah, tried to help Kath. Um, that's my wife through the whole six months when she was living by herself. What do you think makes a good therapeutic relationship? What is it that... Honesty. Look you in the eye when you're talking to you uh, and listen to what we're saying. And if you ever um, tell us you're going to do something, do it, because if you don't do it, you won't gain our trust. And if you don't gain our trust, guys, you ain't going to get shit. People will lie to you the whole time. So, yeah, I know you sit there and listen to people, but hear what they're saying, all right? And that's the hardest thing to do is actually hear what people are saying. Now, what I do, I set small goals. And, um, yeah, when I've achieved that goal, then I'll set another one. Um, and that's the way I get through. Um, and that was taught to me by somebody that's over there, actually. <laughs> yeah, because I used to go for these massive plans and um, we had talks about it and they said, her and Jason actually said, look, let's break it down in, into sections and achieve that and achieve that. And I actually, it worked for me while I was in hospital to get out because um, every fortnight you had a meeting and the meeting was to set your, your goals and to like have a check up with the doctors. But the main thing was uh, they were setting goals for you to achieve. So I used to set the only little goals every week. Um, it might be taking your own medication, start taking your own medication, um, start transferring, whatever, just small things. Um, so I always complete the goals each fortnight and that got me out of hospital three or, three or four weeks earlier than everybody else because I got to a point where they couldn't do anything else for me. Um, I'd achieved everything they, they've done in that, they do in that hospital, so they let me go home, you know what I mean? Um, I could have checked myself out at any time I wanted, but you got to learn. You got to learn, and you got to listen um, how to look after yourself. You got to stand up for yourself too. Right? Don't let people walk over you. Right? You may you may have a disability, you may have a brain injury, you might have a broken back, whatever. You might have been born with some sort of disability, but don't um, don't ever take shit off people. Don't ever ever. Um, if you think you're right, you stand your ground and you will find that people will respect you more and um, your social worker is someone that can teach you how to do that. You know what I mean? How to be more positive with yourself, how to believe in yourself because uh, that's what my social worker has done for me. And the best thing that happened to us was probably um, Ibis 15 years ago because Jason, before um, I got injured, Jason and Rebecca taught me a lot about how to handle the system, because it's how to play the game, because the medical system in Australia is a game. And if you learn to play that game properly, um, you can nearly get anything you want. You know what I mean? But you've got to learn to play the game and you've got to listen to the people um, that have the knowledge. You know what I mean? Like these Rebecca and Jason know a lot more about the ins and outs of um, the system than I do. So I listen to them. They've put me onto people that have been really helpful. One last thing which is immensely important is that um, I've learned to, but she also taught me how to recognise the signs of when I'm starting to go downhill. You know, life's a roller coaster, and all you're trying to do is level it out a bit. And um, Beck really helped me to, to learn um, a lot more self-control, if you like, um, and when to see the signs, I know the signs now, when I'm um, starting to get depressed, or it might look like I'm, yeah, just things aren't working out in my head and I can't get everything right, um, And but I know the signs and I ring back and say, mate, we need to have a couple of sessions. That's at the moment we're going through rolling sessions because I need to speak to her about stuff and um, this is just a stage you go through, and then I'll come good. I won't see her for two months, um, maybe, or one, or a fortnight or whatever. But I like, I still like having that fortnightly contact, um, just because um, it's yeah, it's better. Uh, it makes me feel better. I get to unload, 
Um, don't get me wrong, we talk to Kath about everything, and, but just someone, you've got to have someone outside the box. And if you can get your, your client slash whatever they're called now, patients, whatever, to um, relax and believe in you, you'll do a lot better. Uh, when you go to meet them, sit down and look them in the eye. Always look them in the eye. You know, if you're looking away, they, they're not going to trust you. I won't trust anybody. That, they won't look me in the eye. Um, yeah, so major point for me anyway. Listeners, you may have heard uh, the term IBIS used by Paul in his story just now. IBIS is actually the name of the Brain Injury Rehabilitation Service that he uh, was involved with for this lengthy period of time and where he met Beck, the social worker that he worked with. The other term you may have heard was NDIS. And for those listening to our podcast for a while, you know we've mentioned that before. But just to fill in our international listeners or anybody new to the podcast, the NDIS in Australia is the National Disability Insurance Scheme. And it's where uh, out of your taxpaying dollars, uh, you are contributing to fund support services for people living with disabilities. This is a relatively new service that our government in Australia introduced in the last five or so years and uh, is still in its teething process. And as you heard, Paul had had a really good uh, experience with the NDIS and uh, it was actually really interesting to hear him speak about that, Liz, wasn't it? About his experience and that it was really positive. It was. The other thing that I thought was really positive, Nim, was his top five tips on how to work with uh, people. As yes. social workers. Yeah. And I thought, look, if ever there was a fridge magnet, really, that honesty, if you say you're going to do something, follow through. Yeah. Look them in the eyes. Yeah. And listen. And it listen. Is. It's a fridge magnet. And I reckon it comes down to that. It He's is. Right. I would agree completely. And that all those things together are what builds trust. And I thought that was really, really an insightful statement to make, right? And it's something we've talked about quite a bit on this podcast, but actually, being able to clue in to what the person you're working with really needs from you in order to build trust is so fundamental. Whether it's a long-term relationship that your um, clinical relationship that you're starting with someone or whether it's a short-term crisis piece of work, trust is fundamental. Sure is. And I mean, clearly Beck and Paul have got a very trustful relationship. The other thing I liked what Paul said was, that it is a game when you're trying to negotiate to get services to survive in the health system, to get Centrelink payments, whatever. it's a game. And I thought, again, he's boiled down something like systems theory into a fridge magnet. It is <laughs> yes. a game. And our role as social workers is to, is to essentially explain the rules and then support them through the game. That's right. That's right. And with so much emotion flying around everywhere and so much need that people have, it's actually quite easy to forget that this is a game and or to forget what the rules are actually, the implicit rules that don't get said. And which is why social work is so important in those bureaucracies, right? Is just to navigate those rules and help people tell their stories, advocate for their stories, you know, really work out what are loopholes? What aren't? What uh, how, what angle do we have to talk to on at which point? Like this is really really important. Mm, I yeah. agree, Mim. And that yeah. that you call it when it's not fair. Yes. So let's focus now on listening to Beck's story. And so I think we've got another hammock experience coming up here, Mim, for you and I because. Beck tells a story, as I mentioned in the introduction, with, with pure grace. And she talks about their 15 years of work together. And she also talks about the various theories that inform her work. Yeah. But she uses a great analogy to describe the, the nature of their work together. And so I, I won't spoil it because she explains it so much better. Um, but yeah, look, this bit goes for about 12 minutes and I think you will learn lots and you and I will probably just kind of, you know, go, wow. We'll kick yeah. back in the hammock for a minute. 
Let's kick back. All right. So I met with Paul initially uh, as a referral for somebody who was caring for a person with a brain injury. Um, his wife has had a very significant traumatic brain injury after a tree uh, fell on her head. Um, at that particular point in their life, uh, they had made a decision to make a sea change. Um, things in their life were really starting to come together. They'd experienced uh, some very severe tra trauma in their life um, for a number of different reasons, uh, one of which uh, losing a child in a, in a car fire um, and some other really difficult you know, aspects of, of life. So they'd moved, they both got new jobs. Um, it was a really exciting time for them. They were celebrating with some friends out on the farm and, uh, and just this tree randomly fell off, um, or, or a big branch, um, which resulted in a significant injury for Kath. And so my role initially with Paul was working with Paul from the perspective of a carer. Um, and dealing with a very significant adjustment to life for both of them, um, but for him as well in terms of his role um, and what life looked like for them, which was very different to what it had looked like previously um, on lots of levels. So uh, thinking about it, I guess, from that biopsychosocial perspective, um, there were so many different layers of adjustment and change and grief and loss during that period of time and my role was really positioned at that time to, to work with Paul through those changes and to help him to be able to create a new normal um, and deal with the changes that came with that. Um, so I think what was interesting about that time was that Paul uh, had pockets of time where he really needed quite intensive support and we would have blocks of sessions um, but then he would life would kind of find its rhythm and things would go along okay and it might be quite a long period of time six months a year even where I might not have any contact with him at all um, but we had an arrangement where he would be able to contact me and felt safe to be able to contact me if there were points of crisis or where things change where he would benefit from having that support. So I guess part of what I offered him was just a safe place to fall um, and a relationship therapeutically where um, there was an established trust and some established norms around that relationship um, so that he knew that he could come and talk to me about whatever was happening for him. Um, and that, you know, hopefully, I guess my role was to be able to provide support and guidance and mentoring and at times some really strong advocacy when we needed to advocate for, for services or support outside of the context of, of where I was working. Um, so there were some pretty significant things that happened over that period of time where Paul was not only caring for his wife with a, a brain injury, um, but they were also dealing with uh, at one point um, the suicide of their son, um, the uh, birth of a grandchild with very profound illnesses and, um, and a range of other complex issues that, um, that I won't discuss in this context. Um, but they were the points, I guess, that were punctuated by my support um, where we would then engage in some more intensive therapy um, and, and again, then Paul would be able to move through, through life and just contact me on a needs basis. Um, there was a period though where Paul started to really experience some significant depression and um, I think part of my role was really helping him to be able to, to identify what was happening for him at that point in time and how he could navigate through that in a way that um, kept him safe. Um, and that allowed him to regain his sense of hope and his sense of meaning and his sense of purpose in his life. Um, which, you know, at, at you know, various points in time can be difficult to find when you are dealing with so many different layers of grief and loss. And so uh, we, we spent some more intensive points uh, of work really looking um, from a range of uh, from a therapeutic perspective, I guess, in a range of different ways. Uh, I really am a, a strong believer that um, practice informs theory and theory informs practice, that they're not separate con uh, concepts, but that they inform each other. 
Um, and so there were times where I would be very deliberate, very uh, particular in the approaches that I might use, so whether that was more of a CBT approach or whether we looked at more kind of grief therapies or um, a range of different things. Um, but there are other times where I think Paul actually, through his narrative, through his story, um, and through the needs that he identified, that we engaged in really specific practices. So um, we used a lot of narrative therapy um, at times, um, but that was very much driven, I think, by Paul um, and the way that he conceptualised the challenges that he was having and um, the way that he identified um, specific needs um, and and I guess we looked at techniques that would be helpful for him to be able to unpack that and to be able to find his hope and find his way forward through what was the time some really dark periods of his life. Um, there was a point in his, his story I guess where we, he had he said to me in this final session before I went away on leave, he said, you know, Beck, life has thrown so much at me. I just don't think that it could get any harder. I feel like I've hit rock bottom and this is as hard as it could, could possibly, possibly get. Um, and I went away on leave and I came back and I came back to a, a message to say, please call Paul urgently. He's had a, um, an accident at work. He's fallen through a roof and he's broken his back. Um, and I think as a, a clinician, um, to see somebody who has already experienced so much, to then be facing this profound and significant life change again, um, it's, it's quite heartbreaking, I think, as a, as a clinician. Um, but I, it also provides great scope to see the resilience in humans, to see the capacity that people have. Um, and Paul is an exceptional human being who, in spite of everything and this being another thing thrown at him, he's been able to find his hope and his purpose and his meaning. And I've had the privilege of, of walking through that with him. So he broke his back, he sustained a traumatic brain injury and his life once again was turned upside down, um, as was the life of his wife, who um, in some regards they, they swapped roles where she became his carer. Um, and although he continued to have a caring role, she took on roles that I think probably none of us realised she was even capable of, um, which was incredible to watch, to watch her story and her journey. Um, but also to watch the way that Paul was able to pick his life back up again. And so there was a lot of work that we did around adjustment and self-identity and how does he uh, recreate his sense of self in this new context and this new environment and um, how does he walk that through with his wife as well. Um, so again, there were some periods of time where I, I guess my work was punctuated with more intensive uh, periods followed by less intensive periods um, and I think as a clinician part of my role is to determine that with a client to get a sense of what they need at any given point in time and um, and the intensity of that um, and I, I guess I was really reflecting on this over the last little while about what that looks like um, as a clinician and I don't know if this is a um, I don't know, a silly analogy to use, that part of it feels like when somebody allows you into their life as we are allowed to look into the, the window at times of people's lives at the most painful point in their life, at times where um, you know they've experienced incredible hardship and trauma and the privilege of that being in that space with somebody where they're gifting you their narrative. Um, I've been reflecting on it thinking about that sometimes when we uh, meet with our clients and they gift us with their narrative it's like we unwrap a little part of that with them um, at the pace and with their permission um, that they're ready for and certainly in uh, previous roles that I've worked in uh, for example in the emergency department in more critical care social work um, intensive care that that type of role 
we might see people for such short periods of time that perhaps it's just an hour or two where we get to walk alongside them in that particular point in their journey. And when I was doing that sort of work, it was a lot of the work that I was doing was really around death um, and meeting with people at, at significant traumas. And we just unwrap a little part of that story with them. Um, and that's all that we have permission to do and all that we have time to do. And we need to be so careful and deliberate with the way that we do that. Um, as opposed to, I think, working with somebody like Paul, where over the course of time, we've been able to unwrap lots of different layers of his story. You know, he's gifted me the opportunity to work alongside him in this way. And um, bit by bit, uh, point by point in his life, we've unwrapped a different layer. Um, and sometimes that has been a layer of hope, and sometimes that has been a layer of pain. Um, but doing that in really strategic, deliberate and careful ways and seeing that gift um, as something that's precious. You know, I think when a client tells us their story, they are doing that in a place where they're incredibly vulnerable and where they're trusting us to, um, to take that story and to explore that with them and to open that up. And that's, that's difficult. Uh, it takes incredible... Um, vulnerability to, to, to do that and so as clinicians we have a responsibility to do that well um, and to be thoughtful and to be um, just really conscious of how we unwrap that with them and you know I, I talked a little bit earlier about the way that I you know I think theory informs practice and practice informs theory and I think that's part of that unwrapping process that we we're really guided um, by that and you know I know there are certainly clinicians that work from a very purist perspective um, and I think there's a real space for that. For me personally I, I tend to work more eclectically um, that I'm guided by where a person might be at and what their needs are in terms of how I might then apply theory or, or how I might apply uh, practice in that context. Um, you know, always, I think for me, that what underpins my work and certainly what's underpinned my work with Paul has been that ecological perspective, thinking about the various different systems uh, generationally as well as specifically or individually that impact on Paul um, and really thinking from a critical social work perspective as well that um, not only the power that's invested in us as clinicians, um, but also the power that's invested in the systems that our clients engage with and also the power that's invested with our clients. Um, you know, and to be able to hear the, um, the knowledge and the wisdom and the capacity and the strengths and the qualities that they bring to the table um, and to draw that out with them and to be able to um, work from that strengths-based perspective recognising that the work that we do with them is just a small snippet in their lives um, because they come to the table with so much already. Um, and Paul is certainly a fine example of that, of somebody who has come to the table with phenomenal attributes and skills and abilities. And, um, and part of my role, I think, is to draw that stuff out, is to highlight and to work with and then to build on with permission. So life for Paul now uh, looks quite different to what it looked like after initially after his injury. Um, obviously there was a lot of adjustment that needed to happen and continues to happen but for Paul one of the things that makes him so extraordinary is his absolute unwillingness to give up on life and his capacity to be able to see that there are opportunities there um, if you're prepared to look hard enough. Uh, Paul has uh, a lot to give um, and not only has he set his own personal goals and achieved many of those goals himself uh, in terms of his day-to-day -day living, he has also uh, taken it upon himself to share that with other people. So. Uh, he now has uh, staff that he employs in a, um, a hobby type business that he has developed 
um, and he also has people with uh, disabilities that come to his home where he uh, gets to share some of his practical skills. Uh, Paul has a, a background in being a handyman and has particular um, skills in things like welding and so he has clients come to his home now uh, where he gets to, um, to provide them with a space where they can create their own sense of meaning um, and he can role model to them what it's like to be knocked down with life but pick yourself back up again and you know I know some of the conversations that he has in turn with those clients are raw and real um, and you know unlike me who might be walking alongside Paul I'm not walking in his shoes I haven't experienced the things that he's experienced but for some of these other people that come into his world they are experiencing similar things to what he has experienced and so he gets to speak to them in a way that is profoundly useful and powerful um, so for Paul now part of I think the meaning making in his life part of his adjustment and his own uh, creation of a new self-identity is as a mentor for others um, but also in his own sense of being able to to do things independently again and although he's not able to work in the way that he was able to work prior to his injury he's finding uh, a vocational or semi-vocational ways of being able to do things that draw on his skills and his knowledge um, and so there's that mentoring capacity and um, thinking then also about the relationship the therapeutic relationship that I've held with Paul I think we as clinicians can t it can be a risk to um, have almost like a professional arrogance where we are coming in to help a client um, and we might view ourselves with having you know a set of knowledge and skills and perhaps wisdom and clinical experience and while some of that may be true it's not a one-way street uh, what I've really learned from Paul and from many other clients over the the years of my clinical practice is that um, this is a partnership and in a partnership we learn from one another and there's a ripple effect that happens from that the the things that I've learnt as a um, result of working with Paul are things that I've been able to take into my clinical practice and then work with other clients. Um, the knowledge that Paul has imparted upon me, you know, the wisdom that he has graciously shared with me um, and the openness and the vulnerability that he has, um, has given as a result of that has allowed me to become, I hope, a better clinician, um, but also be able to take that knowledge and, uh, and draw on that when I'm working with clients who may have similar situations or perhaps there might be different situations, um, but where that knowledge has, I guess part of Paul's story lives on. Um, and it's not in the way that there's ever any disclosure of Paul's story, but just that knowledge that has been acquired as a result of working with Paul. I don't think we've ever had a social worker and a client who've worked together for 15 years, so this is special. Yes, absolutely. And what makes it even more special is that Paul and Beck started working together as social worker and carer of someone with a head injury. Yeah. And then a few years down the track, Paul also sustains a head injury as well as a spinal injury and becomes a client of the service. So this is really quite a unique story. Absolutely, yeah, not a classic one. Not a classic at all. And I was reflecting, as I was listening to Beck tell the story, Mim, I was reflecting on this, you know, we'll get to, we'll get to um, Beck's beautiful analogy, but I came up with my own. And my, my analogy is social worker as anchor. Mm. And by that I mean that in this relationship, she became an anchor in what would have been these rolling crises 
losses, traumas in this couple's life, in this family's life. And I had a real sense that Beck was this anchor for them. Yeah. That withstood and bore witness for 15 years of this couple's life. Both it's, I think she called it, it was both a privilege, but it was also painful that there were times, you know, when she came back from leave yeah. and Paul had sustained that traumatic injury. Yeah. To have seen him just go through so much, the death of a child, the suicide, all of this, and then he has this horrific accident, which would then have had profound impacts on him caring for his wife. However, I mean, you know, they've, they've grown together in all of this, but she had to bear witness to that. But there's something about that that must be incredibly healing, um, reassuring, affirming. Maybe. I think that's all absolutely right. But I think also it, it's such a personal impact for her, right? Like to be, to be standing by someone for that long uh, and, you know, we talk about boundaries all the time, right? But we can't ignore the fact that we are people ourselves as well. And we do become connected to the people that we work with because we are with them in their most vulnerable times. And so she has both grieved and celebrated for this couple over such a long period of time that of course she's gonna have that personal impact. It's, it's absolutely impossible to ignore that for her. And you could hear that in the telling of the story. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Mim, what did you think of Beck's analogy of the gift and the unwrapping and the different layers that um, were revealed over the course of this long-term relationship? Yeah. Um, well, she talked about that idea of the risk of professional arrogance, of not assuming. And that unwrapping of the gift is kind of part of that. You can assume that if you take it superficially you're going to take off the next layer and it's just what are we going to do now at this point in your life are we going to now apply for these sorts of benefits are we now going to do this go through this process of your diagnosis or are we going to right you can look at it very task focused or you can unwrap that present and each layer brings new depth right the actual and i think that's what she was trying to say is that there's a deepening that happens over the course of a long-term um, therapeutic relationship. That actually, you know, each layer revealed more. So they built on each other. Even if the tasks changed, it all built on each other over the course of the relationship. And there's something about being able to, I guess, draw on what's worked in the past as well. Mm. You know, to be that reminder too that you have withstood so much, and I know this is incredibly difficult at the moment, but here are all the things that, that you have successfully worked on over the years when you've become quite low. Um, yeah, I, th I think there's something nice about that. You can shorthand it sometimes. Go, you know this, you know this. Come on now. Yeah, that's we can it. we can get through this. Like I would imagine, there's a bit there's a bit of shorthanding that goes on in that relationship because she's calling him on those moments. So she's actually saying, "I know you well enough to know what what you may potentially be seeing." That's different to professional arrogance. I think, I think that's a reflection of the relationship rather than assumption on behalf of the other person. I didn't get a sense of arrogance at all. Did no. you? Like it was no. a true partnership and. Um, I also liked the way that Beck was able to to talk about what was informing her practice mm. too. Like, I don't know about you, Mim, but I use I don't like the word eclectic in practice. <laughs> like, oh, like no one like no one the likes to use work at word eclectic. But Liz, that's because those of us who are old enough remember back in the 90s, when eclectic was the word that all social workers would say to describe themselves all the time in inter job interviews, everywhere. If you said, what do you practice from? They would say, well, I'm eclectic in my approach. And then- Full stop. Full stop. And then that then became a way to say, I don't know how to talk about theory. 
right? But and so we don't have that here. No, this well, as a profession, <laughs> we changed. And we went, you know what? That's not good enough, people. It's time for us to be able to explain our professional practice framework and why we do what we do. And like Beck is a perfect example of someone who can actually really clearly articulate what practice framework she's coming from. And she can truly use the word eclectic because I think <laughs> she refers to things like the biopsychosocial, loss and grief models, CBT, crisis work. There was a leaning, I think, more into narrative therapy yeah. if we had to choose one. Yes. And I thought she articulated that beautifully. And I really loved how she talked about how she could use it in asking Paul how do how does he see himself in this context yeah from going from carer to now someone who in fact is a client of the injury head injury service yeah. what's that like so very much a language very very narrative therapy language that she uses even in the telling of Paul's uh, of their story yeah i love that yeah no i i really uh, was really impressed with uh, the longevity of the of the contact between them and then therefore the professional intimacy that had developed over time and, and mutual respect and regard. Okay, so the other thing that I thought showed such incredible humility was how Beck talked about the value that Paul actually brings into other people's lives, mm. the peer stuff that, that he now does, yes. that of course carries such weight. It doesn't replace the social work role, but it actually really enhances the recovery process to actually have someone like Paul talk to another person who's either one a carer or a person with a head injury. Well, it was quite amazing, wasn't it, to hear him say that he's able to say to people, yeah, you've had these experiences, but here's another way to think about that or another way to look at your situation in life. And I was listening to Paul talk about that and then Beck talk about her intervention with him. And I was thinking, how empowering for her to be able to support him in that process to speak with other people as well, right? Absolutely. But the other thing is, Mim, similarly to spinal injuries, people with head injuries are often blokes, yeah. right? Yeah. And so I think there's a lot of power in a couple of blokes just yeah. talking and using, like you listen, you heard Paul, there's no way that Beck is ever going to be able to speak like that. Yeah, yeah. Um, with authenticity. Yeah. Um, but I would imagine, you know, Paul sidling up to someone who's just had a head injury or is trying to live life with a head injury or a spinal injury for that matter. And for him to actually say, mate, you can get through this. And I'll tell you why, because I'm doing it. And these are some of the things that have been really useful for me yeah and listen to your social worker <laughs> and to have that conversation in just a really authentic way right mm. like I, I think that's so special so powerful I love that so a huge thank you to Paul and Beck for sharing their their just a part of their stories that I think so many of us have learned from so thanks, Beck and Paul. Yeah, thank you so much. And like, I hope, Liz, this is the start of us having this combination of client and social worker on more regularly. I think it's a wonderful thing to get the client voice and the lived experience voice onto our podcast. I mean, really, what is social work without the lived experience, right? Yes, I agree. Liz. And I also wanted to thank, well... You going, you going I to think say we were going to say the same thing. What were you going to say? Uh, well, well, I was going to say thank you to all our beautiful listeners for companioning us through 2020. Um, uh, it's been such a privilege working on this podcast through what has been one of the toughest years. Absolutely. I, I, I would imagine I'm speaking on behalf of the world here for everyone, but I've also wanted to just thank all those social workers that have shared their stories with us, both on the podcast episodes, but via email, um, messaging us, offering us their stories that will take us well and truly into the future. Let me tell you, there is a shopping list of people that we are very keen to follow up with. And um, it just goes to show how even though we've, um, it's been tough, 
we've, we, we come together as social workers. We really do. To share and support each other. And even though it's all virtually, I think we've, um, we wouldn't have been able to have done this podcast without all of those social workers and associate social work tribe members being here with us. Just in case anyone's terrified right now, the podcast is not ending. We're just finishing for <laughs> 2020. So this is just Liz is taking a moment. She's having her Oscar speech moment and I'm, that's fine. She's a bit tired from 2020 and deserves her Oscar speech podium moment, people. <laughs> thank you, Mim. Uh, thank you. And I'm holding the virtual trophy I knew here you would be. at my I side. I knew you would be. My Oscar. While we're busy thanking people, I want to jump in and say thank you to Hamish and Noni, who are our journalism interns who work behind the scenes on our fabulous podcast and um, have been really doing such an amazing job all year. If you've engaged with us on Instagram uh, or our new Facebook page or Twitter, you've come across Hamish's work and uh, that's been really awesome. And Noni's been working behind the scenes on our new website, Revamp, and we've been really appreciating that. We also wanted to say a fond farewell to Felix, who was our social work student with us this semester and has done an incredible job, interviewed so many social workers for us and um, has just been having a ball doing it, I think. So he's uh, graduating as a social worker now, joining our tribe. Amazing to call him our colleague and not our student anymore. And hopefully we'll still have him involved in some way in the podcast into the future. Mim, before you, we, whilst we're talking about social work students, yeah. I got a text from Katie the yes. social work student that we had before Felix, she's now got a paid job oh, I in love a it. hospital, a I, local hospital I in New South Wales. I love hearing these stories, Liz. Yay! And Brenna, our student beforehand, is um, uh, busy going for job interviews. So all the best, Brenna. Well, it is that time of year, isn't it, where social work students, definitely in our part of the world, are finishing up and uh, uh, heading out there into the job market and going for interviews. And so good luck to all of you who've been listening and, and slaving it away this year. And we hope and that here's COVID... a little tip. Here's a little tip of the job interviews. If you're going to say eclectic, <laughs> you want to back it up, baby. That's back right. It up. Back up what you're saying. But really, like we, I really hope that COVID doesn't... Um, prove too difficult when it comes to job seeking for our graduates. I mean, they have worked really hard this year and uh, they deserve that great first job. So uh, looking forward to hearing um, where everybody is and what's been going on out there in the big wide world. Take care, everyone. What a year to end. Bring on a new and different year 2021 and we will be back at the uh, beginning of February. We're going to take a bit of a break, but we're still going to be present with you in a different way but we will see you for new episodes again at the beginning of February so take care everyone all the best. Bye.